It's been described as the perfect murder, an impossible murder. As far as mystery authors like Raymond Chandler, P.D. James, and Dorothy L. Sayers are concerned, this one true crime beats all the others. That crime is the murder of Julia Wallace, and it's the kingpin of all locked room mysteries. As strange and mysterious as is the 1931 death of the Liverpool housewife, it is the chief suspect, William Herbert Wallace, Julia's husband, that remains the biggest enigma of all. Was he really the chess player they couldn't checkmate? Or was he really just an unassuming insurance salesman thrown into the spotlight for a crime he didn't commit? I'm Jaden McKell, and you're listening to Straight Up Enigmas. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, before we get started today on this crazy, unexplained mystery, I just want to remind everyone to please support the show by subscribing or following wherever you listen. It may not seem like a big deal, but it really helps the show when you become a subscriber because it moves the podcast up through the rankings so that others can find it more easily. If you like the show, please give it a five-star review. That also really helps the show, and I want to keep these episodes coming for you guys. Thanks in advance for doing so, everyone. I didn't give you as much detail in the cold open for this episode because I want you to listen to the story, listen to the details and the evidence, and I want you to be able to make your own decision about this case. Now, I'll just tell you right now, you're probably going to start out leaning one way, but then I'll talk about uh, some new evidence and you'll go, what? Okay, he's totally guilty. That's, that's why this case has gone unsolved since 1931. No one can make any sense of it. I'm going to describe what led up to the murder, the events around it, then we'll talk about the evidence and theories. I really only used one article for this episode. It was just so good and thorough that I didn't feel like I needed another one. It'll be on the website, of course, but it's from a website called theunredacted.com. This one's a little long, folks, so strap in and get ready. You ready? Okay, let's begin. The 52-year-old insurance salesman seemed nervous, jumpy even, as he rode the tram to his destination that dark winter evening on January 20th, 1931. William Herbert Wallace was looking for an address he had never heard of before, and whether on purpose or not, his behavior was ensuring he would be remembered. The tram's conductor later recalled how Wallace repeatedly bugged him and his ticket inspector to let him know where to get off. When he eventually pointed Wallace to the correct stop, he seemed to want to make his point very well known that, quote, I am a complete stranger around here. After stepping off the trolley car, Wallace struggled to find the house he was looking for. 
Did 25 Men Love Gardens East even exist? Was he on a wild goose chase? If the suspicion had entered Wallace's thoughts, he had good reason considering the weird way the appointment had been made in the first place. A local cafe where he went to a chess club had received a phone call for him the previous night, January 19th, the caller giving his name as R.M. Qualtro. Although Wallace only attended the chess club every once in a while, the caller appeared to know that he would be there that night and left a message for him with chess club captain Samuel Beatty, I believe it's Beatty, maybe Beatty, uh, asking to meet regarding insurance business. Wallace had never heard of Qualtro and had never received a business call like this at his chess club before. But 1931 was Depression era in Britain, and he decided to keep the appointment, sensing that there might be a lot of money involved in it. The message directed Wallace to meet Qualtro at 25 Menlove Gardens East the following night at 7.30 p.m. So there he was, lost in Liverpool at night, trying to find an address that seemed not to exist. He had asked the tram conductors, he had stopped people in the street, he had looked at uh, street directories in news agents, which I believe are just newsstands, uh, and he had even stopped a policeman and told him his entire strange story. Each time Wallace stopped to talk with someone, he made a show of mentioning what time he was supposed to meet with this Qualtro. It turns out uh, there are lots of men love gardens in Liverpool. North, south, and west. East, though, doesn't exist, which is probably something the locals joke about all the time. Whoever had made that call seemed to be playing a prank on Wallace and sending him on a wild goose chase, basically for a made-up address. When 7.30 came and went, and Wallace realized that his appointment wouldn't be made, he eventually gave up and decided to go back home. It was around 8.45 p.m. when John and Florence Johnston, Wallace's next-door neighbors, saw him outside of his house at 29 Wolverton Street. He was looking kind of flustered, um, sort of annoyed, telling them both that the front and back door were locked and wouldn't open. Seeming kind of concerned, he asked the couple, have you heard anything unusual tonight? The neighbors followed Wallace to the back of the house and watched as he tried the back door lock one more time. With them watching, it opened on the first try and Wallace entered the house. As the Johnstons waited outside, Wallace lit a lamp and walked around the house. A few moments later, he came back outside and said, matter-of-factly, Oh, come and see, she's been killed. To the Johnstons' horror, Julia Wallace was laying in front of the gas fire in the front room. And this part is a little graphic, I'm just warning you. She was violently beaten to death, blood splatter splashed across the walls. They finished her, look at her brains, a ghostly white Wallace muttered. 
Back in the kitchen, Wallace noticed the locked cupboard where he kept his insurance collection money had been wrenched open and the four pounds inside had been stolen. If this was a robbery that had ended in murder, it looked like a targeted one. The rest of the house hadn't been ransacked and nothing else had been taken, including the money from Julia's purse, which was sitting right there on the kitchen table. At this point, John Johnston ordered his wife and Wallace to stay put and touch nothing while he called the police and a doctor. Although he probably knew that a doctor couldn't do much for Julia at that point. 25 minutes later, the first officers from the Merseyside police arrived at the Wallace's house. Their handling of the case was not good. Sort of like the uh, police department in the John Bonet Ramsey case, the force had been um, weakened pretty badly by a major strike in 1919 that had led to half of its staff being dismissed. Uh, those remaining often filling in roles that they weren't really qualified or experienced for. The first officers on the scene PC Fred Williams and Police Sergeant Breslin searched the property on arrival. It looked like someone had gone through some things in the bedroom, but the rest of the house appeared totally undisturbed. The officers made one important observation. Underneath Julia's body was a partially burnt coat, so she was laying on the living room floor and there's a burnt coat underneath her. They wondered if it belonged to the killer or if Julia had been wearing it when she was attacked. During the next hour, a reporter from the Liverpool Daily Post arrived to do double duty as the police photographer, and John Edward Whitley McFall showed up to act as the police's forensic expert. McFall's role would prove to be super controversial because many feel he bungled the chance to gather the most vital piece of evidence the time of death. Even in 1931, using the uh, cadaver's rigor mortis alone to try and figure out how long someone had been dead was out of date. Even in 1931, it was out of date. But that's exactly what McFall did, stating his opinion that Julia had died at about 8 p.m., 45 minutes before Wallace got home, based on the body's stiffness. McFall would later change his mind on the time of death, even though no other tests had been conducted. A more detailed examination of the body showed that Julia had been beaten severely on the head with a blunt object, the most severe blows occurring around the left ear, and okay, this is a little graphic too, where brain tissue could be seen protruding from the skull. The fatal blows were probably given while she was laying face down on the floor in front of the fire. Police think that she must have brushed the fire as she fell because of the singeing of her dress and the coat. Detective Superintendent Hubert Rory Moore arrived next and he was not in the greatest shape of his life since he came straight from the local pub where he'd been drinking. Like any good policeman, drunk or not, Moore had his eye on Wallace as the main suspect. But there was also the possibility that the crime was the work of the Anfield housebreaker, a burglar that had been causing havoc in the local area in the previous months. They thought that maybe one of his robberies had led to uh, fatal consequences for Julia. 
whoever the culprit so frenzied was the attack that it was obvious they must have been covered in blood splatter had sprayed around the whole room blood drizzling the walls up to seven feet high an examination of the house's drains and sinks showed they had not been used that night so the assailant must have run away completely drenched in julia's blood a more thorough search of the house, yard, and surrounding area found no trace of a murder weapon. The Wallace's cleaner would tell police that a uh, metal fire poker and an iron bar from the parlor were missing, so one of those could have been the murder weapon, and that is really important to pay attention to. That missing iron bar from the parlor is going to come into play later so keep that in mind as as the possible murder weapon while the police checked the house and the yard for any evidence wallace sat in his kitchen and calmly explained to hubert moore um, and the other detectives about his weird night and how he had been lured on a wild goose chase around men love gardens by the chess club phone call from rm qualtro around midnight he was taken to the police station to make a formal statement and he said quote i have no suspicion of anyone in the days that followed police began to find some um contradictory evidence regarding Wallace's involvement in his wife's death. A switchboard supervisor at the Liverpool Telephone Exchange had narrowed the call to the chess club to a phone booth just 400 yards from Wallace's house in Wolverton Street. So the call that had been made to the chess club, the call from R.M. Qualtro, that phone booth was only 400 yards away from the Wallace's house. So was that a coincidence? Maybe, maybe not. This booth was also right next to where Wallace had caught the tram to his chess club the night before the murder. And it was just before he had arrived at the chess club that the message had been received. To police, this looked like too much of a coincidence, and that is a lot of coincidence. They suspected that Wallace had uh, made the call himself in order to provide himself with an alibi for the murder. The suspicions against Wallace were growing, and it was not looking good for him. He and his wife were a little bit of a strange couple. Um, he was sick a lot with kidney troubles, and she was described by their few friends as very meticulous, almost OCD. A former friend characterized their marriage as strained and lacking in feeling. So the police were kind of thinking, kind of suspecting that maybe Wallace had finally snapped and decided to get rid of his nagging wife. Police also took note of uh, Wallace's strange behavior and especially how he had made such a big deal on the tram and around Men Love Gardens and the number of people he had stopped and asked for directions. From the Johnstons, they learned the whole thing with the locks before the body was discovered and how the locks had magically opened once they were present and watching. 
The police thought that Wallace was making sure that he uh, would have witnesses when the body was found. That someone would be able to testify and say, yeah, I was with Wallace when we found the body. He, he wasn't there in the room with, with the body. Even though Wallace was becoming the prime suspect, the time frame surrounding the murder seemed to uh, exonerate Wallace. He was definitely on the trolley car to Menlove Gardens at 7.06 p.m. And several witnesses stated they had seen Julia alive between 6.30 p.m. and 6.45 p.m. This would have only given Wallace a window of about 15 minutes to kill his wife clean himself up, change his clothes, and go catch his tram. It looked extremely unlikely that Wallace could have done it in time. The police even did a reenactment with a young officer sprinting from Wolverton Street to the tram stop, but it was obvious the 52-year-old insurance salesman was not capable of doing any such thing. Whoever Qualtro was, and whatever the reason behind the call, it had succeeded in providing Wallace with an almost rock-solid alibi. The only problem was, it didn't look like anyone else could have committed the crime either. No weapon, no suspects, no witnesses, and the body found in a locked house. Whoever had killed Julia appeared to have pulled off the perfect crime. It's no wonder mystery novelists have been so obsessed with the case. It kind of seems like something dreamed up by Edgar Allan Poe or Agatha Christie uh, or maybe even Stephen King. Raymond Chandler, who I mentioned in the cold open, said, The Wallace case is the nonpareil of all murder mysteries. I had to, I had to look up the word nonpareil because I'd never heard of it in my life, but it just means unrivaled, the champion. Like, this case is the champion of all murder mysteries. I call it the impossible murder because Wallace couldn't have done it and neither could anyone else. Despite the lack of solid evidence in the case, the police charged Wallace with the murder. At his short four-day trial in April 1931, the prosecution tried to argue that uh, Wallace had committed the murder naked, except for the coat found underneath Julia's body, a, a very sort of obscene theory, especially for back then, and it made a really strong impression in the courtroom. The defense countered with the timings that seemed to exonerate Wallace. The defendant himself, Wallace, acted uh, very unaffected during the whole trial, rarely showing any emotion at all. When called to the stand, he spoke nervously but calmly, refusing to become flustered by the often aggressive questioning of the prosecution. Some thought that Wallace's behavior was what sealed his fate with the jury rather than the actual evidence, which was uh, very scant. Despite a feeling by most observers in the courtroom that the prosecution had failed to make their case, and even though the judge summed up favorably towards the defense, the jurors returned in just a few hours with a unanimous verdict of guilty. When the court clerk asked Wallace, Have you anything to say why sentence of death should not be passed upon you according to law? Wallace simply replied, quote, I am not guilty. I cannot say anything else. 
Wallace was sentenced to death by hanging, and the execution date was penned in for just a month's time in May 1931. The appeal that followed, however, saved Wallace's life. The following month at the Court of Criminal Appeal in London, the judge made the unprecedented move of overturning the guilty verdict. The case against Wallace was not, quote, proved with that certainty which is necessary in order to justify a verdict of guilty, he said. The result is that this appeal will be allowed and this conviction quashed. Wallace walked out of the courtroom a free man that day. The press was, of course, up in arms about the whole thing. They, they loved it. Wallace was painted as an occultist and, most of all, an intellectual chess-playing mastermind. The chess player they couldn't checkmate, as one newspaper put it. Exhausted and diminished by the ordeal of his wife's death, the trial and the accusations in the press, Wallace moved away to a quiet bungalow in the Whirl, uh, which I hope I'm pronouncing that right. I'm guessing it's like the English countryside, um, somewhere remote. Suffering from his old kidney troubles again, he died in February 1933. If the mild-mannered insurance salesman had had any dark secrets, he had taken them to his grave. Are you guys totally worn out yet? I told you this was going to be a long one. Uh, so let's go ahead and review the evidence for motive. What, what could have motivated this murder? If there's even one thing remotely clear in this crazy, confusing case, it's that the murder was not the result of a robbery that went wrong, ending with the murder of Julia Wallace. Wallace told police that four pounds were missing from his insurance collection tin, but we only have his word for that. If this money was taken during the murder, then the burglar put the lid back on the tin and then put the tin back where he had found it. What also doesn't make any sense is that the so-called burglar failed to take anything else. Julia Wallace's purse was sitting on the kitchen table next to where Wallace says the insurance money was taken. The purse had money and silver in it, yet the burglar ignored it. The fact that there was no sign of a break-in and the murderer left and locked the doors behind him all but rules out a burglar like the Anfield housebreaker. And no robber would have had a key or would have been allowed to enter by Julia, who was paranoid about strangers. Some theorists have suggested the Qualtro call was an attempt to get Walsh away from the house so that they could steal his insurance money. But if you take a little bit of a closer look at this, it doesn't really hold any water either. While it's true that the chess club met in a public cafe and its schedule was pinned up on the notice board nobody could have sensibly planned a robbery based on it the chess game schedule did show that wallace was set to play a match on the evening of the qualtro call but it also showed that he had been scheduled to play several games in the previous month and had not turned up to them the chess club met twice a week, but by January 19th, Wallace had not played since November 10th, missing many, many matches in the process, like dozens. 
Only one person in the world knew if Wallace would have turned up for his chess match on January 19th, and that was William Herbert Wallace himself. And if another culprit was somehow aware of this, why didn't they just commit the crime on the 19th when they knew Wallace would be gone all evening? If not robbery, then who else would have had motive to murder Julia than her husband? By 1931, Wallace's wife was an elderly woman who led a very sheltered life and had very few family or friends. Nobody has ever managed to come up with anybody who would have had a credible motive for Julia's murder besides her husband. That it was personal is evidenced by the degree of overkill, a classic sign of a crime of passion. If you've ever watched Criminal Minds, they say that all the time, that overkill is a sign of a crime of, of passion. A random burglar would have had no reason to beat Julia so violently, 11 blows in all. It was only really Wallace who knew her well enough to have developed such strong, passionate feelings of hatred against her. But he had an alibi for the night Julia was killed. Although to many, this seems a bit too good to be true. Central to the case against Wallace is his coincidental and almost too perfect alibi for the night of the murder. Normally not the most talkative of men during his hour or so journey to the non-existent address, in Men Love Gardens, Wallace stopped and discussed his meeting with at least a dozen strangers, all right? And he's he's not usually a super um, outgoing, talkative guy. Wallace says he left his house on Wolverton Street at about 6.45 p.m. and caught the number five tram at 7.06 p.m. Both the conductor and ticket inspector recalled how a visibly nervous Wallace repeatedly asked them about exactly which route he should take in order to make his appointment at Men Love Gardens East. They both told Wallace that they had never heard of such an address, but um, advised him which tram he should take next. As an insurance salesman and collections agent, it was Wallace's job to travel around Liverpool and he must have known the city pretty well. He, he probably had made hundreds of collections in a given week, either by foot or by traveling on tram and bus, and he knew the surrounding area of Men Love Gardens well too. He had a friend that lived nearby uh, named Joseph Crew, and Crew told police that Wallace had visited his home several times. In light of what Crew uh, told the police, it didn't make sense that Wallace would need to repeatedly ask the conductor about which route to take. According to the tram conductor, Wallace didn't even take his advice anyway, seemingly knowing exactly where he was going. After getting off the tram, Wallace uh, talked to at least four local residents, none of whom had ever heard of Men Love Gardens East, and North and South didn't even have a number 25. Wallace claimed in later statements that it had dawned on him that he was on Green Lane, where his friend Joseph Crew lived. He did call in at Crew's house, but he was not home. He and his wife had gone to the movies. Was it Wallace's intention all along to stop at Crew's house, make sure the time was noted, and by doing so, give himself an even stronger alibi? 
Wallace next stops a policeman and tells him the whole story about the phone call and the wild goose chase. The most important thing Wallace discussed with the policeman was the time. It's not quite eight o'clock, he said. No, it's quarter two, replied the cop. What better alibi than a policeman? And just like he had done with everyone else he had talked to, he made a very obvious statement about the time. But Wallace didn't stop there. He walked to a nearby post office and news agents, which again, I think is just um, like a newsstand where they sell newspapers, and uh, spoke to several more people about his appointment. The news agents even checked their account books for any Qualtros in the area, but turned up nothing. Wallace said at that point he gave up and decided to go back home. Then we have the whole thing with the door locks when Wallace gets home. At the trial, the defense tried to argue that the locks were just old and rusty. But if they were, that doesn't explain why he either appeared to be super confounded by locks that he used dozens of times a day or how the real criminal had entered the house without any sign of force and then locked the doors when they left. As for the mysterious Qualtro, police searched Liverpool and found five people of that name, but all denied making the call. Since the call was almost definitely part of the criminal plot, nobody would probably use their real name to make it. Police believed that it was Wallace himself who had made the call. He had the opportunity. The phone booth was next to the stop where he had caught his tram to the chess club meet the night before Julia's murder, and the timing of the call is not contradicted by his known movements. It also acted as a stellar alibi for him, guaranteeing he'd be away from the murder scene on the night his wife was killed. Whether he could have adopted um, a deep voice convincing enough to trick his friend, chess club captain Samuel Beattie, is a lot more debatable. It would have been a risky move, but as you can probably tell by now, there's not one single detail that you can rule out in this case. You have to look at every little thing. The forensic pathologist John McFall had revised his time down from 8 p.m. to 6 p.m., which doesn't make sense at all because uh, Julia was seen alive between 6.30 and 6.45 p.m. So now the forensic pathologist, his time of death is kind of like out the window. Like you can kind of just throw all out the window because it's not, it's not really making sense at all. He's changing it without doing any other tests and he's putting the time of death at a time when Julia was alive because witnesses had seen her alive. So Wallace, Wallace had a very slim but not impossible chance to have killed Julia either before or after his journey to Men Love Gardens. He still would have had to clean himself up though and change his clothes because of the amount of blood splatter caused by the frenzied attack on Julia. It seems really unlikely that Wallace could have had the time to do this however you move the puzzle pieces, but could he have had an accomplice? Some students of the Wallace case believe he didn't actually do the killing himself, but hired somebody else to do it for him. And if correct, this would make most of the objections to Wallace's guilt based on the timings of the murder just totally fall apart. And there is some evidence that points in that direction. 
In Wallace's police statements, he says that he went straight home after giving up on his appointment with Qualtro and did not talk to one other single person again. But this was contradicted by a 20-year-old girl named Lillian Hall, who says she saw him at about 8.35 p.m. talking to another guy close to um, his house on Wolverton Street. Hall could recognize Wallace by sight really easily because she was friends with his next-door neighbor's son. So she had seen Wallace many times. She knew what he looked like. Could the man who Wallace was talking to be his accomplice? Was it him who had actually murdered Julia while Wallace was out cementing his alibi? The accomplice theory does take care of some of the most perplexing evidence in the case. If Wallace had um, supplied them with a key, it would explain how the killer had managed to enter the house without force and then leave by locking the doors. And if Wallace had told him what day he would be attending the chess club, the accomplice could have posed as the mystery Mr. Qualtro and placed the call to set up an alibi for him. If Wallace had somehow gotten the services of a professional hitman, we'll probably never know his identity. But in recent years, some investigators into the uh, Wallace case have suggested a possible suspect in the murder named Richard Gordon Perry. Perry was a young man, um, a young guy. He was a car fanatic, an amateur actor with a few uh, little petty crimes already to his name. At about 1 a.m. the morning after the murder, Perry drove into Atkinson's all-night garage in Allerton. Garage attendant John Parks had known Perry since they were kids and was alarmed at how fidgety and jumpy he seemed. Perry told Parks to wash his car down with the high-powered water hose. Parks, who had always been kind of afraid of Perry, did what he was told. Parks reported that there was almost this ominous feeling in the air. He said that something felt wrong, but Perry wouldn't acknowledge it. Inside the car, Parks found a bloody glove, prompting the watching Perry to say, quote, If the police got that, they would hang me. He then told Parks a confusing story about throwing an iron bar down a drain on Priory Road. When Parks had finished washing the car, Perry paid him five shillings and drove away. This totally looks extremely suspicious, but there is a problem, of course. Parks did not mention this incident until 1981, when he told it to author Roger Wilkes for um, a documentary called Who Killed Julia? Parks claimed he did not tell anyone at the time, both because he didn't want to be involved and because he was afraid Perry might go after him. When Perry died in 1980, Parks said he thought it was finally safe to tell the truth. This just like gets under my skin. This could be the answer to everything, but this guy was too afraid to tell the truth. And so maybe, maybe Perry was guilty and he just went free all of those years because this guy was like too afraid to tell the truth and say what he had seen. Perry is an interesting suspect because um, Wallace and his wife both knew him well. A few years before the murder, he had worked with Wallace at the Prudential Insurance Company and he would fill in for Wallace when uh, Wallace got sick. So basically, um, Perry would take over his shifts for him. 
Perry had been in the Wallace's house lots of times before, had had tea with the couple, and um, had even struck up a friendship with Julia. If Wallace really had paid someone to kill his wife, then Perry is an obvious candidate. Julia Wallace was extremely paranoid about strangers and would never let anybody in the house that she didn't know. Had she answered the door to Perry that night and invited him in as a friend, or had Wallace given Perry a key to the house, which he returned to him during the meeting in the street seen by Lillian Hall? There are some problems with this theory too. Perry was um, a jack-of-all-trades kind of guy who spent a lot of money. He owned an expensive car, which was rare for men his age in 1930s Britain. But there's no evidence of him suddenly uh, getting a large sum of money, and there's no evidence that Wallace had the means to pay it. Wallace himself also suggested Perry as a possible suspect during his police interviews, listing him as one of a handful of people Julia Wallace would have let in her house. He wouldn't have done that if the pair had plotted the murder together, right? I don't think. Police also investigated Perry at the time and concluded that he had a strong enough alibi to be discounted too. Are you guys are you guys doing all right? Are you hanging in there? I told you this one it's long, it's confusing. Um, but we're gonna go ahead and take a little bit of a closer look at Perry. All of the arguments used against Perry by those who believe Wallace was involved equally apply if Perry acted alone or with his own accomplice. Perry's name has been alluded to by numerous writers on the case and even Wallace himself mentioned him as a possible suspect. The evidence can be stacked up against Perry pretty convincingly. He was an arrogant, um, cocky young guy who had an expensive car and lifestyle. He had worked with Wallace a few years earlier at the uh, Prudential Insurance Company and he knew the Wallaces in their house well. Crucially, he was also aware that Wallace usually kept large sums of uh, his insurance collection money in the house. It was when Perry was filling in for Wallace, because um, remember Wallace was sick a lot, so Perry would kind of um, take his shifts from him. Uh, so Wallace started to notice that money was missing from his ledger. Perry had been stealing money from the takings and would do so on other occasions in the next year. Perry wasn't fired, but there was sort of a hush-hush agreement that Perry should leave the company of his own accord in 1929. Most authors who push the Perry theory believe that um, the young man, short of money and already having some petty crimes to his name, decided to rob Wallace for his prudential insurance takings. Some authors think that uh, he even had an accomplice himself, another former prudential employee named Richard Marsden. Perry frequented the cafe where Wallace's chess club met and where the chess match schedule showing that he was due to play on the 19th of January was pinned to the notice board for everyone to see. 
According to John Parks, Perry could change his voice easily and he would make prank calls a lot. If Wallace himself had not posed as Qualtro and made that prank call to the chess club, then clearly Perry looks like a prime candidate. Most Perry advocates theorize that he made the phone call to get Wallace away from his house. Using his car, he could have parked on uh, the street and surveyed Wallace, waiting for him to leave his house so that either he or an accomplice could come to commit the uh, burglary. Exactly how he got in and exactly what happened inside to leave Julia's battered body laying dead in the front parlor is unknown. Both Perry and proposed accomplice Marsden were known to Julia, so it's possible that she let them in voluntarily, one distracting her as the other rifled through the kitchen for the insurance money. Maybe Julia realized what had happened and she tried to raise the alarm, which resulted in, in her death. Whatever actually occurred, John Parks says that early the next morning, Perry stopped at the garage and he asked him to wash down his car inside and out, and inside was that glove covered in blood. Perry remarked darkly that he would hang if the police found it. Perry mentioned disposing of an iron bar, which, remember, the Wallace's maid had said was missing from the parlor. If John Parks' story is true, then it's really hard to avoid the conclusion that Richard Gordon Perry was directly involved in the murder of Julia Wallace. The nature, though, of his involvement, or whether it included anybody else, is, like most parts of this super confusing case, likely to continue remaining a mystery. The Wallace case is like a jigsaw puzzle, where the last piece never quite fits. No matter how many times you try and put it all together, it refuses to be solved. One of Wallace's lawyers from the trial was there at Wallace's side as he lay dying of kidney disease in 1933. The lawyer reported later that Wallace whispered with his dying breath, Well, we won, Sonny, didn't we? All right, everyone, thank you so much for um, listening to this episode. I tried to warn you, it was a long one, but it was a really good in-depth look at one of the most confusing, mysterious cases, and uh, some argue that it is the most baffling case ever the most baffling true crime case ever so again thank you for listening if you like the episode please make sure to go and give the show a five-star review this really helps the show make sure you become a subscriber or a follower wherever you are listening again thank you so much and i will see you next week for a brand new episode of straight up enigmas